Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It is my tremendous pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Rabbi Laura Geller, to the Bully Pulpit podcast. Rabbi Geller is one of the leading voices in the pioneering generation of women rabbis in this country and Rabbi Emerita of Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills. Laura, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about aging in the Jewish community, but I want you to set the stage for us for a sec about aging in our society in general. What's going on in America with respect to aging? So first of all, this is very personal. Aging is, in a way, one of the most important global challenges. In the United States, people over 65 will double from 40 million, that's 13% today, to 89 million, or one in every five Americans, by 2050. And that's going to have far-reaching implications for work, lifestyle, business, and government. We need effective solutions now to ensure sustainability in the coming decades. So let me stop you there for a sec and ask you if we keep things the way they are, it's not going to work? I think that that's clearly true. So I want to offer a quote from the famous social scientist Stephen Cohen, who yes. happens to be a professor a at, colleague the of ours at the Indian College. College. He wrote, boomers, that is to say people born beyond 1946 and 1964, are the first generation in human history to reasonably anticipate living into their 80s and 90s, if not beyond. Jews, as others, are not only living longer, they're living in an age of meaning-seeking, with the interest and the wherewithal to make living a life of meaning an ultimate and reasonably obtainable objective. As such, this aging yet largely healthy generation of American Jews poses a challenge and an opportunity to a community that is as yet unprepared for the totally new policy and planning opportunities that loom in the near future. It's not just that they're going to live longer. It's that people are going to live longer periods of health and vigor. So it's not just a question of Social Security being funded longer because people are going to rely on it longer. What he's getting at is these people are going to be able to contribute longer. Exactly. Everybody knows that people are living 31 years longer than our grandparents did. It's not 31 years at the end of life. Right. Not 31 years of frail old age. It's a new stage of life that didn't exist before between what Erickson called maturity when we were building our families and our careers and frail old age a new stage of life. We don't even have a word for it yet. We don't have a word for it, among other things, because that extension of life and the, really an extension of the middle of life, is what you're saying, happened in, in cultural terms overnight. Right. Because it can't be named, <laughs> right. it's hard to imagine how to speak about right. it. Do you have a name for it? So people are calling it the next stage, the third chapter, the encore. Part of what's hard about it is there's so much ageism in our society that people don't want to acknowledge that this is a new stage. Adolescence was made up in the 1920s. It right. didn't exist. It was a new stage of life. 
we are in that similar kind of revolution now with this new stage of life. It's not necessarily retirement, because first of all, not everybody retires. Yeah. And secondly, retirement is a word that evokes for me images of my parents moving out of New York City to Florida, playing right. golf. That is And to sunset. Right. It is not what is happening now. So the question is, how does the Jewish community acknowledge this huge cohort of people who have more discretionary time, some of them have more discretionary income, and a deep desire to want to still be taken seriously. And the Jewish community, with its focus on investing in 20s and 30s, mm. and imagining that the right. Jewish future is only about investing in 20s and 30s, we also need to look at this cohort of people who are ready and able to be engaged if only they can be seen by the Jewish community. And that and is the revolution. Not only seen, but taken advantage of, not in a cynical way, but meaning let's take advantage of, of their potential contribution. But I, I want to go back a sec. In the reform Jewish world, we straddle two attitudes. On the one hand, our Jewishness is ancient and rooted and has a tremendous type of wisdom to draw upon. And on the other hand, that reform qualifier of our Judaism is forward-looking and embraces innovation and looks at challenges coming from the future with a particularly creative lens, I think, when we're at our best. So I'd like you to talk to us about what is it about the ancient part of our identity that can help us meet this challenge with success? And what is it about the reform part of our identity, the forward-looking part of our identity, that can also help us meet the challenge successfully? Well, the short answer is that Jewish tradition has a lot to say about growing older. The High Holidays, uh, the poignant line in the prayer, Shema Koleinu, listen to our voice, where the prayer says, do not throw me off when I am old. The, you know, the fear of being right. irrelevant right. is already flow. part yeah. of uh, our tradition. And there's just a lot of power in the tradition about how one ages with grace, what does it mean to grow older, what are the spiritual practices that can help somebody become the 85-year-old or 90-year-old that she yeah. or he wants to be. So the tradition has a great deal to say about it. And the important thing, I think, is for us to begin a conversation to talk about this. So with your permission, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what Please. we've been doing here at Temple Emmanuel, because I think it's a model for other Great. reform synagogues and, in fact, synagogues around the country. Mm -hmm. So about three years ago, I gave a sermon. The title was, Will You Still Need Me When I'm 64? <laughs> it led to a seven- or eight-month campaign where we met with about 250 people in the congregation between the ages of mid-50s to mid-70s in people's homes. We asked three questions. The first question was, is this a new stage of your life? And if it is, what keeps you up at night and what gets you up in the morning? What are your concerns? What are your hopes? The second question was, has the Jewish community ever been here for you at this stage in your life? If not, what might that look like? And the third question was, what kinds of changes need to happen in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our communities to help us make this a rich stage of our life? The age range of the people whom you mentioned in these groups itself is quite wide. 
Did you find that there were correlations between relative youth and relative agedness amongst the respondents, or no? Was this, in fact, a cohort? They're technically a cohort, although the older folks were not technically boomers, but yeah. the rest of the group was technically a cohort, as generational theory underlines it. But I think that the thoughtful late 50s are beginning to think about it, and the folks that are in the middle 70s are living it. So, yeah, I think it was. There was. That, that to me alone is, is interesting, but, but I'm fascinated to hear. What, what, what were people saying? What did you derive from this? So the two major fears that emerged was the fear of invisibility and the fear of isolation. Mm. For many people, it was the first time they'd ever spoken about this, particularly for the men. And it opened up conversations among people within the congregation that had never happened before. People said incredible things. I'll just quote a few. Compared to previous generations, we're all on borrowed time. Most people were dead by our age. 30 years is a long time. What's coming up? One child is in college, one is out of college, struggling to make his way. I wonder what I did right, what did I do wrong? And now I'm getting to know my wife again. Understanding who I'm married to without children in the house has been a profound experience on many levels. With all my careful financial planning, I didn't anticipate having to support a mother who lived well into her 90s. Because of the way you set up this conversation, which is that this is just happening now, we don't even have a name for it, in addition to the fear of isolation and invisibility, there's also the confronting the unknown. There's a, these are pioneers. These are people living into this new right, reality. Right. They're charting a course. I think that's absolutely true. And also, this generation is, you know, we used to talk about the sandwich generation. Right. Now, this is really the panini generation. <laughs> people that are really, really squished. Oh, because the machine that squishes right. the panini, it, it's... Be, between taking care of older parents and adult children, many of whom are coming home, the, move, the boomerang generation. Right. And where are we in relationship to the people that we care for? That issue came up over and over again. And one associates invisibility with superfluity, sort of lack of being necessary. But if you're really in the Panini generation and you're getting squeezed, you're not going to be invisible because you're not important. Because if you're getting squeezed, it's because people need you and people are demanding stuff from you and of you. That's not, that doesn't feel like invisible to me. The invisibility had more to do with professional issues. So here, ah, here's okay, another okay. statement. And again, these are verbatim quotes from right. these conversations. Who am I when I'm no longer a partner in my law firm? I see. People always ask, what do you do? Work is my identity. I'm the oldest person in my workplace. I look around and wonder, if I want to keep growing and changing, where do I go? Mm. So those were the kinds of questions. The most moving of all, we're looking at a much longer lifespan, but maybe not that much longer vitality. I'd like to find a balance between choosing to enjoy things a bit and being financially responsible. People plan and God laughs. We can't really control what's going to happen. You know in surveys in which people are asked what they will be doing 20 years from now into the future, they generally see themselves as being the same as they are now. But we're different from where we were 20 years ago. We think we have experienced and learned so much, and we know all there is. But there's so much more to experience and to battle. It will take tremendous courage. Will our generation have the bravery to reimagine and redesign our own paradigms of living. So that's the challenge. It actually 
seems that you're being met with eagerness. Yes, it does require courage because it is a brave new world and because there's no name for it. But at the same time, they're not shying away from it. They're kind of rushing to meet it. If the community gives them a space to have those conversations, if the community sees this as an important conversation to have, that's the challenge for Jewish institutions. So let me tell you what so we did at Emmanuel. Us, yes. So we had these conversations. Somebody wrote everything down. After these conversations, a group of leaders went through all of the information and discerned four different themes. The first was spirituality. The second was giving back. The third was concerns for ourselves and people we love as we grow older. And the fourth was community. So what is spirituality? Spirituality is that whole question of what Jewish tradition has to offer us at this stage of our life. The most important thing that's happening around spirituality is the wise aging effort mm. that Rabbi Rachel Cowan and Linda Thal captured in the book that they wrote called Wise Aging. Through the Institute of Jewish Spirituality, they are training people around the country to offer groups, essentially a curriculum, in synagogues or other places where people can get together and talk about what Jewish tradition has to say about this stage of life. So we were able to get a grant to bring Rachel and Linda to Los Angeles, and we invited teams from all synagogues around the city of Los Angeles to be trained as to how to use this curriculum. And in our congregation, there were 11 people that went through the training. And those people are now facilitating groups in the congregations. There's no question that the people that are in the groups are transformed by the experience. The whole focus of this particular component being Jewish tradition, spirituality, questions of uh, fundamentally religious questions. Exactly. And among the issues that are dealt with are what are the spiritual practices? How to use meditation? How to use musar? Character refinement? You know, what are the most important character traits that I need to be working on now as someone in my middle 60s in order to be that 80-year-old I want to be? I need to work on patience, gratitude, compassion, forgiveness. Sounds like things we could all work on. I think that's absolutely true. So this curriculum is not really just for this age cohort. You can imagine people in their 20s and 30s focusing on it as well, One although hopes. it's not as urgent for them as it is for those of us who are older. Why, but why the, is patience more urgent for a person in this stage of life than I, a 20-year-old? I think because things are slower when you're older. Uh, you can't move around as quickly as you might have. You can't maybe have the same expectations for your physical self as you did when you were younger. You didn't mention mortality and afterlife and stuff like that. I think that's also a part of the discussion, but that's not a character trait that you work on. Interesting. That in itself right. strikes me as interesting. But, but the point is that Jewish tradition has something to say about this. And it's not just, oh, I need to pay attention to forgiveness. There's actually a spiritual practice of how to pay attention. There's the whole tradition of tshuva and unpacking that and working on that. And in the Musar movement, there is actually regular exercises mm -hmm. that you can do in a group that actually do challenge you to think about um, how forgiveness operates in your life or not. So our tradition has a lot of things to say about it. And this course was well received? This uh, uh, it's been incredibly well received. Where people are 
banging down the doors to get into a class, and we don't yet have enough facilitators to teach. Really? So that's one dimension okay, of spirituality. Okay, so we've got the spirituality. Another dimension of spirituality, which for me is particularly important, is the issue of new ritual. One of the things that I learned as a, through the feminist movement in the late 60s and early 70s is that my experience is Jewish experience. The fact that there were no rituals for entering a baby girl into the covenant or right. a ritual for abortion or a ritual for weaning didn't mean that there shouldn't be a ritual. And so the early feminist movement began to create new rituals, and the world is different because That's of right. that. The yeah, rabbi's the world is manual, different, and we take it for granted exactly. in many ways. Exactly. The rabbi's manual that we have now is totally different from the right, one when right. I graduated. And nobody questions it. Right. Similarly, this is a new stage of life. And the question for somebody like me, a spiritual and religious person, is what are the moments when I want to acknowledge the presence of God at this stage of my life? The tradition is completely silent about ritual for this stage of life, for a lot of reasons we could go into, but probably not so important. But what are those moments? So for example, after I gave the sermon some years ago, I get a call from a congregant. She's on her way with her sister to clean out her parents' home mm. as they uh, were moving their mother into a, an assisted living. And she said to me, Rabbi, what is the prayer you say when you are about to clean out your parents' home? And I said, yeah, there should be a prayer. What is the prayer you say? Turns out that Rabbi Jack Reamer, a very wonderful rabbi, had in fact written a prayer for a similar kind of occasion, which we were able to adapt. Well, well, what are those moments? You are married to somebody for a long time, that person dies. At what point do you take off your wedding ring? Mm. Is that a private moment? Is that a public moment? Is it something that happens in a synagogue? And there are many, many other sure. kinds of moments. Retirement, becoming a grandparent, a real serious issue that is operating in many of our synagogues. And these are real-life issues for real-life Jews in our real-life synagogues. And the particular issue that I'm speaking about is you've been in a marriage for a long time. It's been a wonderful marriage. Your partner now has dementia and doesn't recognize you anymore, right? You are obligated out of both love and moral tradition, moral yeah. obligation, to continue to care for that person, to make sure that that person is dignified safe and, and comfortable. Dignified but you want to get on with the rest of your life. What do you do? And what should Jewish tradition say about that? Mm. Is that adultery? Is it something that is you do quietly and nobody notices? Or is it something that a synagogue should be talking about? That, that's another example. That's a fascinating and totally, very, very right? touchy, I can imagine. So my husband and I, in thinking about all these things, made a decision that the way we understand love that if that should happen, God forbid, we want our children to be clear that the healthy person is not only entitled, but would be uh, encouraged by the other to uh, go on with the rest of his or her life. And we convened our children and had a end-of-life conversation with them about what we wanted at the end of our lives. And we said that very explicitly. And then there was a little ritual that we did in front of our children where we added a condition to our marriage contract, which explicitly said that this is what we wanted. And, you know, God forbid that should ever happen, but if it does, 
it will be a lot easier for the healthy person to get on with the rest of his or her life with the support of a community, and that's what we need desperately at this stage of our life. So, so these are so some, of, some very compelling examples of what's going on, but it's only one piece right. of what you've done. So the second piece was giving back. People in this age cohort have talent, energy, they're used to being useful, and they want to find ways to volunteer in meaningful settings. The Jewish community is not very good at this. There is a lot of stuff in the secular world. Is the stuff in the secular world much better in making those opportunities meaningful at the level of these people's intellect and experience? Because my experience is that there is plenty of opportunity to give back, but it's either, if it's not financial, if it's volunteer time, it is in fact not built in, Jewishly or otherwise, to draw on their real talents. It's in fact homogenized, very basic work. I'm not so sure that the non-Jewish world is much better than the Jewish world. There are world. lots of organizations here in Los Angeles, something called Executive Search, right. where somebody who was a lawyer or somebody who has management skills or whatever is matched with a nonprofit who needs that person's help. And Executive Search makes the match. The nonprofit pays Executive Search and the volunteer doesn't get paid. So the volunteer has the satisfaction of actually really making a difference. Okay. So that's one Duly example. Noted, there are yeah. many. Encore.org is doing very interesting work around intergenerational mentoring. So there, the truth is there's a lot happening, but Jewishly there isn't a lot happening, well, although the New, the New York Federation is doing some, but here in Los Angeles, So I stand nothing. corrected. We have a lot to learn. Exactly. The third issue is concerns about people we love, the economic concerns, the health care concerns. And that really seems, at least here at Emanuel, to be focusing on this issue of end-of-life conversations. You would be surprised how many smart people have never had the conversation with their adult children about what they want at the end of their life. Yeah. They might have advanced health care directives, but they've not shared them with their children. As a rabbi, I sit in hospital rooms all the time where adult siblings think they both know what beloved mom or dad wanted, but interpret it differently, mm. and it leads to incredible toxicity, horrible, Lots horrible, of suffering, I can imagine. Unbelievable. We also know that part of the reason that health care is so expensive is because very often at the end of life, all kinds of expensive procedures are called for, which wouldn't necessarily be what the dying person Which does. account for a large, it's a exactly. huge disproportion in exactly. the national cost exactly. of health. So this is where the personal meets the political. If people really were clear about what they wanted, that would change the economics of health care. Cedar sinai our neighborhood important, wonderful hospital, has asked Temple Emanuel to partner with them in imagining what it would take to get more congregants to have these conversations and advance health care directives. Not we, just to have them printed out and written, exactly. but to discuss them. And right. you're convinced that the discussing exactly. actually clarifies exactly. and smooths the exactly. way when death comes. After the high holidays, we've been doing programs around this. Um, Yom Kippur, there was a Yom Kippur forum, where, which we called Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die. Oh, you you're, you're not pulling any punches. And who decides. Uh -huh. um, and this also, by the way, was just after the governor signed his... Uh, he, he hadn't signed it yet, but that was the moment when this whole issue of death with dignity was uh, being discussed in, in California. We sent out a survey to the congregation 
to get a baseline of how many people had advanced health care directives and how many people had talked to them with their adult children or their adult parents, depending on their age, and what the synagogue could do to encourage those conversations. So now we have a baseline, and the idea is that with our partners at Cedars, we will imagine different kinds of programs, see what works, see that what doesn't, and then a year from now or two years from now, do the survey again and see whether we have increased mm -hmm. the number of people. So that's a very specific, important, and profoundly Jewish thing to do. You know, when the first discussion uh, with Obama's health care plan, people spoke about death panels. These are not right. death panels. You know, what better place than a faith community to talk about issues of um, dying? Yeah. Because it's ultimately about living. It's about the quality of life. It's not about death. So that's the third. Okay. And the fourth is community. How do I want to live when I get older? So the research group discovered that there are three major areas. There is moving to an existing facility, a second possibility is what's called co-housing, where a group of people get together and buy a property and redo it in some way so that they can live both communally and still have their own apartments, kind of a Moshav model. And the third is something called villages. Um, it turns out that most people in this age cohort want to age in place. That is, they want to stay in the places where they live but they might need to make changes in their community in order for that to happen. Remember, the two issues that people were concerned about were invisibility and isolation. And the truth is that as you get older, this issue of isolation is really important. So you need to have built within the communities in which you live a thick social capital so that as you get older, there are people there for you. When I was on sabbatical and I interviewed people around the country about what was happening in this issue, one of our reform colleagues said, everybody needs a minion. Right. Not necessarily a minion to pray with, although some of us need that, but a minion, that is to say, who are the nine people that are going to show up huh. when you need support? It, it evokes the sort of old, uh, perhaps mythical notion we have of a denser exactly. urban landscape when people knew each other's neighbors and exactly. looked across the alleyway and yelled good morning. And right. It also evokes the mythical notion of a traditional synagogue yeah. where everybody lives close enough to walk to, to each walk. other right. and it's small enough that everybody knows everybody else. So the other thing that we will need when we grow older in order to stay in our house is somebody that can come and help us. When I can't drive anymore and I need to be taken to the doctor, who's going to take me? My kids don't live here, right? When I am too uh, old to stand on a ladder to change a light bulb, that's the moment when I would move into assisted living, unless I have a neighbor who can come over and change my light bulb. So these villages are a, an attempt to create an intentional community that will both be there socially, but also in terms of services as people need those services. Okay, so the history of this is 15 years ago in Beacon Hill in Boston, the neighbors got together and they decided they wanted to be a village. And from that until now, there are 200 villages around the country. There are 200 more in formation. There's an organization called Village to Village with a website and a, mm -hmm. and a Torah of how to do this. Strangely, and to our great surprise, none of them come out of faith communities. Mm -hmm. They're all neighborhoods. So we are now creating the first ever Jewish village. We got a grant from the Jewish Community Foundation, three synagogues, us, 
Temple, Isaiah, and Cole Ami, three reform synagogues relatively proximate to each other. And we have drawn a uh, boundary around essentially roof. <laughs> West Los Angeles. We've been planning for a year. This village will launch in May. The model is that people join the village. In around the country, the average membership in joining a village is like $700. Uh, because our village requires that you be a member of one of these three synagogues, we kept the membership low, so it's $100 or $150 for household. Uh, we haven't launched yet. We already have 70 people who are members of one of these three synagogues who have joined the village and committed to be part of the social fabric of the village in that they will donate four hours a month of service to the village so that neighbors will be helping neighbors. And what's really interesting about this is that it will strengthen our synagogues because one of the ways you can use your four hours is by volunteering at your synagogue. Every synagogue has a problem getting volunteers. The village will feed these three synagogues and help create and sustain the notion that a synagogue can really matter in people's lives. It really will matter. The three models that you mentioned, going to a home, the moshav, and the village, it's not just that there are separate solutions, but they may also be sequential among them. Possibly. It may be the case that the villages only work until a certain right. stage, and then right. you, at which point it would be interesting to think about the bridge between them. Right, I think them. that's true. And I, but the, what the village does is make that step yes. into right. uh, an assisted living come later down the road. Right, it definitely defers it. You know, it's very expensive to move into assisted living. The village is not very expensive. Even at $700 a year? Well, $700 a month or a year? For the uh, nationally a year, but here again, in our village, $150. That may not be sustainable. That is exactly the challenge that we're going to think about once the grant runs out. But our hope is that this is sufficiently interesting that we will be able to get grants. Businesses will want to be connected. But one would hope that it's sufficiently interesting that society responds in a policy way. Right. And now, imagine what would happen if this West LA area really were organized into right, this right, village. Right. What impact that will have on on social services. I mean, this is a, right. a, a, could, a, a group of voting people. Right, you could you could shape things very, especially it, because it happens to be affluent and, and free, people know to Transportation, the recreation, right. sure. all kinds of issues. So that third question that we posed in our initial house meetings, what kind of changes would have to happen in your community? We can make those changes once we are organized and people know each other and they've been in each other's homes and they've screwed in each other's light bulbs or taken each other's to the doctor. The universe changes and the nature of Jewish community changes. So what is really exciting is to imagine what impact this is going to have on what synagogues are going to look like in the future. So this is also very intergenerational. There are young people that are already joining the village. First of all, because they want to be able to volunteer. They have kids, the high school kids, they want them to be able to volunteer. But also a couple of people who have little kids, and they want to be, they don't have grandparents. Some of these people can be their surrogate grandparents. And the hope is that those hours that you tick off on an obligation sheet become social ties that go far beyond. that's right. Now, I have a question. I was actually um, surprised to hear your surprise. When you said you were surprised that it was geographical as opposed to faith-based, that was the, uh, the organizing principle of who joined the village, I was 
I'm still getting past my shock at your shock. I, that would have been my assumption that that geography, proximity, uh, the, the socioeconomics that are implied by geography and proximity would, in America's fluid society, quickly trump religious affiliations in making something like this. I, that makes sense. On the other hand, the job of a faith community is to create right. community. Well, you're, you're supposing that, that faith communities succeed. But your entire enterprise, what makes it so compelling and so so engaging is precisely the fact that it's feeding a need which is exactly. not being fed. But what would a synagogue mean? Right, what it could be. Right. So we are discovering, I mean, part of the truth of this age cohort is that many of those people no longer belong to synagogues. Some of them did, right. but they right. leave the synagogue after their kids are bar mitzvah or whatever, an empty nest. People are joining Temple Emmanuel now because they want to be part, part of, the of the village. Part of the village. That's great. That's great. Right, that is right. really great. It's great for Temple Emmanuel. That's great for the village. It's great, it's great for, for LA. Village. It's great exactly. for West Exactly. So, and I do think that this is a model for other synagogues around the country. And I am hopeful that you know, in a year or two years or three years, we will have the ability to share this with other people and encourage and our movement to, to make this a priority. Yeah, and make, this is the, Jew the, the, the Jewish world. This is the Jewish future. Ensuring the Jewish future is taking this seriously. And that's why it's so exciting. Tell me the one thing that you think needs to be in place for this vision or a comparable vision to have a greater chance of taking root. People have to trust their own experience. This comes out of my need for community for meaning, right. for purpose, to the extent that I take myself seriously, this will happen. You know, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. I'm paraphrasing Margaret Mead, but it's really true. Well, I'm thrilled that the reform movement is partnering with you and that together we'll all be taking the lead on what is invariably, inevitably, our future. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.